Well, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, it's your last chapter in the Bible, the last th three verses. Actually, we'll be looking at the last four verses. Verses 18 through 21. So this morning we close out really two sermon series. We finish up our Advent series that we began uh, four weeks ago, and, and we also wrap up our study of the book of Revelation. If you're new to this church, then you can certainly find um, this, both series, all of those, on the website at gracefresno.com. Um, but as we turn our hearts to the, the last section of this book, the last thought of the canon of Scripture, we consider the topic of Christ's return. And so the title of the sermon is, Come, Lord Jesus. I confess the, that the thought of Christ returning soon was something I did not always look forward to. When I was younger, I had so many things I still wanted to enjoy. I felt like all the descriptions of heaven that I had heard lacked any of my toys and earthly interests. And so heaven seemed a bit boring. Floating on clouds with chubby cherubs wearing diapers was not very appealing. And so when we're not boring children with details of a joyless heaven, we oftentimes are excessively warning them to be ready. Instead of hope, they have nightmares that Christ will return when their hand is stuck in the cookie jar. And so, right, we know we are supposed to anticipate Christ's return, but many of us, for a number of reasons, aren't quite ready for that to occur. And so this tension that we feel, that tension that accompanies this life, strains our anticipation for the life to come. John brings Revelation here to a close with an epilogue that places the focus upon the return of Christ. And we said that that was related to Advent because the term means appearing. And so it can be used in reference to Christ's first and second coming. So Advent is about reflecting upon Christ's first coming, as well as anticipating his soon return. And the more we grasp of the purpose for Christ's first coming, as well as the circumstances surrounding his second coming and the nature and purpose of that second coming, I believe the more we are filled with anticipation for his return as children. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your revelation, all of your revelation from the Old Testament to the New, from Genesis to its final book, Revelation, this vision that you've given to John of the last days, of the latter days in which we now live. Lord, this is a, this is a means of equipping and encouraging your saints this morning. It's a means of challenging us, of exhorting us. But there's also a sense of, of comfort as we anticipate Christ's return, where he sets all things aright, eliminating all forms of wickedness, all reasons for despair, 
and he gives us nothing but pure joy. Lord, help us to turn our thoughts to that now, to be rightly focused upon your word, that you might speak to us and give us the message that we, need, we each need to hear individually, whether we need to be convicted of our sin or comforted by the gospel, Lord, may both of those things be true of us this morning, that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, as we consider this first section, verses 18 through 19, you can follow along in your outline there. The first point is the prophet's admonition. The prophet's admonition. John closes with this strong warning, and it's given to everyone who hears. It's not just given to the scribes who are trying to precisely copy the details of this letter for the church. It's given to everyone who hears. It's a strong warning, and if anyone adds to the words, God will add the plagues of this book to him. And if anyone takes away from these words, then God will take away his covenant promises. So he'll add the horrors and the terrors of this book, if you add anything to the words, and he'll remove all of the glories and joys that we've read about in this book. So maybe after reading this, you can sympathize a bit with the pastor who wants to do justice to the text and ends up painting a very foreboding picture of Christ's return. We need to take some time to think about the purpose of this admonition. To understand who he's addressing specifically and how we can respond to it appropriately. All right, we find a similar warning in the passage that Matt read just a few minutes ago. From Deuteronomy chapter 4, specifically in verse 2, we read, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Meredith Klein makes a convincing case that the ancient Near Eastern treaty documents, of which Deuteronomy has many parallel features, typically included these pronouncements of curses upon anyone who would alter the documents or anyone who would add to them or take away, anyone who would corrupt the documents. And so we see sim sim several similarities between the warnings in Deuteronomy, which there's several other ones as well. There's one in chapter 12 as well as chapter 29, Deuteronomy, that are all parallel to the warnings we find in Revelation here at the end, but also some of the warnings in the previous chapter. We've, we've seen 
right? Several different places uh, associating a warning with idolatry. And that's what, in fact, the, the greater context of Deuteronomy chapter 4 discusses. It was their, their worship of Baal. It was that idolatry that was being warned against, right? That was associated with this warning about corrupting or manipulating the revelation of God. And so you have this promise of a reward to those who heed the warning and then punishment to those who ignore it. John's not primarily here concerned with scribal errors or even misinterpretations of the book. This isn't a warning to everyone who holds a different understanding or a different interpretation of the millennial reign of Christ, which there are four primary positions on that. We've talked about them at the beginning of our series in Revelation. You're going to have some differences there of interpretation. This isn't a warning to everyone who gets the wrong one. John's warning those who would deliberately distort the message that the angel delivered. It's a warning against the rebellious person who seeks to promote himself, himself just stirring up conflict within the church. And so Rick Phillips comments, these two groups, those who would take away from the words of Revelation and those who would add to it, these two groups find their analogies in legalists who would add man-made works to salvation, and then on the other side, liberals who deny plainly taught biblical doctrines. They remove those portions of scripture that are uncomfortable. So notice how easily, even in these last few chapters of Revelation, scripture flows between warning, between command, and promise. We cannot proclaim the whole counsel of God's word by eliminating categories that build tension in the hearers. The warnings remain valid and the commandments remain relevant. So the Holy Spirit works through both means together with the promise to provide the grace that we need to walk in obedience. So he commands what he will, but he gives what he commands by his spirit, as Augustine teaches. So this admonition addresses those who fail to take every part of God's word seriously. And in that sense, it impacts all of us to some degree. How would your walk with God be impacted if all of the warning passages in Hebrews were simply removed from your Bible? What if you ignored James altogether? It would remove some of the tension, wouldn't it? Could understand things a little bit easier. Does the tension of certain passages and books cause you to pay less attention to them? Do you assume that they don't really apply to you? The Puritan, uh, Joel Beakey, tells this story of the Puritan Thomas Goodwin who once went to Dedham to hear a famous preacher named John Rogers. And as Rogers preached, he spoke earnestly about people's failure to take in the word of God, to heed the instruction, to read it, to meditate upon it. And so speaking on behalf of God, Rogers said, you shall have my Bible no longer. And he closed the big Bible on the pulpit. He tucked it under his arm and he made as if he was going to take it out of the church. And then he turned and began to play the part of the people, saying, Lord, whatsoever thou dost to us, take not thy Bible from us. 
Then Rogers again, speaking on God's behalf, said, Well, I will try you a while longer, and here is my Bible for you. I will see how you will use it, whether you will love it more. Goodwin was overwhelmed. Seems like a simple analogy, a simple illustration, but Goodwin was overwhelmed, and as he left, walked out to his horse to return to Cambridge, he hung on the neck of his horse, and for 15 minutes, he simply wept. He wept that he might be such a man to feed upon the whole counsel of God's word. So where do you turn when tension increases in this life? We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to study God's revelation so that we're not tossed about by false teachers who delight to draw attention to themselves and away from Christ. And because we know these words provide life and hope, we may have to confront and correct false teachers who infiltrate the church. Notice, this, is a, this, this public rebuke is, is necessary at times, and, and so timid Christian leadership, it's, it might be very common in today's church, but it was foreign to the Old and New Testaments. The danger is that we become all, all head and no heart, right? That we puff ourselves up with doctrinal precision and we want to just go around correcting everyone. But that, that doctrinal precision never, never travels the 12 inches from our head to our heart. Never leads us into worship, to true communion with God. And so this warning, it's not for the outsiders. It's for those who are in the congregation. And that might be even true of this congregation right here, right now. Those who have heard the warning, but their hearts are not changed by it. If that describes you, I pray that the Lord would convict you of any false sense of conversion and that you might be grieved to repentance and faith. That the Spirit would do a work in your heart to transform you and bring you to a right understanding of God and yourself and your need for him. As those who have heard the words of this prophecy, it is our job to accept them as they've been delivered to us in fullness, without alteration. While in exile on the island of Patmos, isolated away from the body of Christ, John was given this vision that has encouraged the church throughout the present age. And so we must protect it from false teachers who seek to add to it or to take away anything that is written in it. And so some tension is necessary to protect the integrity of God's word. And this warning is not meant to be taken lightly. It's not meant to be glossed over or to think that, it, that it's meant for those outside or for someone else. But neither is it meant to condemn those who are trusting in Christ. In fact, as we see in the next sentence, the next verse, it's these words are meant to build our anticipation of Christ's return. And so that's what we see in the next one, the bride's anticipation in verse 20. Jesus declares that he is coming soon. And John replies, amen. Amen is simply an, a, a term of agreement. It's saying, let it be true. He agrees with the Lord's promise, desiring its fulfillment. 
In fact, his prayerful response is a call for the Lord to come. Rick Phillips says the Didache, which was this church manual dated to the uh, late first century, so it's probably the, it's the earliest uh, church manual that we have outside of scripture. So the Didache, it connects this prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It connects that prayer with the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Philip says, we can see the fervor of the original disciples in that the same prayer for Christ's spiritual presence in the celebration of the supper also expressed their longing for his physical return in the second coming. So again, we all feel the, this tug of war between our flesh and spirit. We know what it's like to want earthly joys more than we want Christ. And so Craig Keener, he tells a story from early in his Christian life that should challenge us all. Again, this is Rick Phillips telling the story. He says, as a young adult, Craig uh, greatly longed for a marriage partner. And this desire dominated his daily prayer life. One day, however, he walked into a worship service where Christians were fervently singing about Jesus' return. He was struck that while he longed for a wife and prayed constantly for this earthly companionship, which God had not necessarily promised him, he was thinking nothing about and praying little for the greatest companionship that God has promised. Keener exhorts us, any other longing we have will be but a shadow of our desire for the greatest and truest love available the love to which the Lamb's shed blood stands as an eternal testimony. Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. May our hearts respond in the spirit of John and the first Christian saying, amen, come Lord Jesus. See, God requires that the church anticipate Christ's return. We feel tension between the desires to reach the pinnacle of earthly joys and our hope of experiencing heavenly joys. And so some of us, we read these words, surely I am coming soon with a twinge of guilt. We know that deep down we're looking forward to having a few more experiences before that day arrives. And so those who are really young want the latest trendy toys. All right, as we get older, we want to enjoy our college years, to start our careers meeting a spouse and some of you already know who that is and so you're awaiting that marriage bliss and you're saying and praying jesus just hold off a few more years well let me clarify there's nothing wrong with anticipating earthly blessing right marriage is a wonderful benefit work is rewarding college life is Great, and toys fill our childhood with a lot of fun, but none of these blessings come close to comparing to the joy that awaits in the new heaven and new earth. All right, when John wrote, Amen, come Lord Jesus, he wrote on behalf of a church that was awaiting to walk down the aisle to see her bridegroom. The groom is patiently waiting for the culmination of everything that he lived and died to secure. 
And so there is literally nothing in this life that can compare to the glories that await us in eternity. So those mourning the death of loved ones or those who are anxious about the health of loved ones, they might feel this anticipation a little more fervently right now. You know how much sorrow and pain will disappear in a moment. Your plea of come, Lord Jesus, might even be characterized as a desperate cry for relief from the heartache of this world. We'll look back on 2020 as a a year that contributed a healthy dose of suffering, discouragement, and sadness to our lives. And so you don't have to be in the midst of a traumatic trial to anticipate Christ's return with joy. Relief and help are on the way, but even better is the fulfillment of every promise reaching its culmination. Heaven will be more satisfying than a room full of every Lego set you've ever wanted. Heaven will be filled with more fun and fellowship than any college student could ever pack into a lifetime. And heaven is an endless honeymoon. It's the wedding that all other weddings are meant to portray, to point to. The bride of Christ is united to her groom forever. Believers will have zero regret that they missed out on some earthly joy when Christ returns. The shadows of ecstasy that we experience in this life will only magnify and multiply when Jesus ushers us into the celestial city. And we'll have all eternity to take in the scene. So on that day when we finally meet our Savior face to face, we will fully understand that nothing in this world compares. Anticipation is worth fighting for because it directs our hearts towards those rewards that are lasting, that are eternal. When we anticipate what is true, we will not not be disappointed when our earthly joy fades, as they are prone to do. As we study God's revelation, the Spirit stirs up our hope so that we will desire Christ above all else. Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's an incredible statement. Are you at that place where to live is Christ so that death is only receiving more of what you're living for? We appreciate God's word, and we boldly proclaim the gospel to our lost neighbors, recognizing and anticipating that reality that is to come, because we're confident in the hope that he's provided. And so the bride's declaration of anticipation is followed by this closing benediction in verse 21, the grace of of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. That benediction, it follows the anticipation and it becomes the anchor of our perseverance in this life. 
Like other New Testament epistles, this book ends with a benediction. It's a lengthy letter where it includes that epilogue, but it closes with a benediction. Those benedictions are so frequent in the New Testament that we treat it as an element of worship in our worship service. And many denominations conclude with one, but I had never even seen a benediction until I attended Sierra View, a Presbyterian church, the first time back in 2006. And so some of you may not be familiar with benedictions like this other than reading them in Scripture. The benediction is a prayerful appeal as well as a declaration of blessing. It's, it's rolled into one. We're asking the Lord to bless and we're receiving the declaration of the Lord that he is promising that blessing to his children who receive it by faith. And he uses, John uses this word that's common in Paul's benedictions, grace. It was one of Paul's favorite concepts. Grace implies that God's favor comes to us free of charge. We can do nothing to earn it. But Jesus earned it on our behalf. Right? As he lived a perfect life in our place. And he goes to the cross. The only one who did not deserve death takes the penalty and the shame of death upon himself. And in exchange, we receive his. We receive his righteousness. So when we hear the Lord's benediction, it's, it's an appropriate way to end the worship service because it reminds us of God's promise while prayerfully sending us off with that unanimous amen. As the people of God, we receive that promise. We respond in confidence saying, let it be true. And so in our response to the benediction, we declare our corporate anticipation of experiencing the Lord's promised blessing. And although this book contains several warnings and terrifying images, of judgment, it concludes with this word of encouragement. And so it's our privilege to receive the grace that's freely provided to us through Jesus. Receiving grace is about allowing God's spirit to give you rest, the rest that you so desperately need. Striving after God's favor is replaced with trusting what Christ has done to earn that favor for you. And so Christians, we often chase after a happiness that is entirely inferior to the offer of grace that we already possess. The Christian life is about relieving the tensions of this life by remembering the covenant promises that Christ has secured on the cross. We long for the full experience of the grace of our Savior that we will enjoy at his return. And so it's that grace which sustains us. It's that grace which fills us with a proper hope in the face of earthly tragedy. 
Do you feel your need for Christ's grace? If so, that's precisely where you need to be in order to receive it. In Come Ye Sinners, Joseph Hart encourages us with the following words. He says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't let your thoughts carry you away from the Lord. And don't think that you have to get yourself prepared. You have to get yourself fit to come to Jesus. No, all the fitness that he requires is to fill your need of him. And then he says, this he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer now who has been tra- whose heart's been transformed to receive that promise and to respond in faith and repentance. It's a gift from our sovereign Lord. And so don't settle for the temporary and fleeting pleasures of this world when the Lord has promised to give you his all-satisfying grace. It'll sustain you through all your days in this life and we'll enjoy it for all eternity in the life to come. So let's give him the praise for that promise. Heavenly Father, We are we are grateful for your revelation. And we want to treasure these words. Lord, we want to heed the warning for anyone who has disregarded your word, anyone who has heard the warning and not allowed it to penetrate their hearts, who have walked in defiance of your commands, are walking in disobedience and unrepentance, who are trying to squeeze out all of the joys that this life has to offer and yet constantly finding themselves unsatisfied. Lord, they need to hear that warning. We all need to hear that warning. Lord, but it's not meant to condemn us. It's meant to draw us in, to be comforted by our Lord. to be so moved by the promise of his return that we would anticipate it beyond anything else in this life. Lord, we've just got through a season of receiving gifts and, and we, enjoy in the, we, we enjoy even giving and receiving those gifts. And we have fun doing that in this life, but Lord, it is a pale comparison to the joy that awaits us when we receive our full inheritance. Lord, we are thankful that Christ has secured it for us, that it is, remains undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for all those who truly repent and place their faith in Christ. Lord, may you stir up in us a greater anticipation for that day. May we never tire of hearing about the grace that Christ has secured for us. 
And even as we stand and sing our response, Lord, we, we want to look forward to Christ's return. Even as the saints in that first, during that first coming who anticipated with great hope the long-expected Jesus, Lord, we too wait with a longing for his return. In Christ's name we ask it.